Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With the rash of illegal bars and pubs, speakeasies, booze cans, whatever you want to call them, including, remember that guy who was running the makeshift nightclub out of his penthouse secondo, complete with the exotic dancers and the 100 cheeseburgers? That was the big one. That got a lot, a lot of attention. Now we've got another one here in Surrey. RCMP say they busted an illegal after-hours nightclub in Surrey over the weekend, leading to almost six thousand dollars in fine. Now have a listen to this. This is Jake Fumier Albert, the guy who's accused here. He says, "Look, it was just a birthday party for his daughter." Have a listen. I when he came, he showed up with a friend. At that point, I wouldn't be able to say, you know what, don't come in because the door was open. So he came in, we were, you know, playing music, chit-chatting, playing cards. Oh, yeah, the door's open. What's he going to do? Here's Corporal Joni Sidhu now from the Surrey RCMP on Surrey Rule Breakers. The message just is not um, being received by them. Uh, so in this case, we decided to issue them an appearance notice to deal with the matter in court. Well, I'm not sure if the message is not getting through or not being heard. Maybe it's just a case of people just hear the message and they don't care. Will we see more of these illegal speakeasies and booze cans popping up around B.C. during the pandemic? Okay, let's talk about this now with my guest, Vince Marino. He owns uh, several pubs in Vancouver. Very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Vince. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming out. You own the, uh, is it the Pump, the Pump Jack pub, right? Uh, we have uh, three, actually, in Vancouver. The Pump Jack, uh, the Junction, which are both on Davie, and we have the GPO Bar, uh, which is in the Woodwards building. Okay, good for you. I've been to the Pump Jack. Uh, that's, a, that's a great place. Uh, how are you guys doing down there during this pandemic? Is your business way down? Uh, considerably way down. Um, yeah. You know, the restrictions, the, the, the hours, and the um, uh, amount of patron capacity have all lowered our capacities for sure. Okay, Vince, how do you feel? Like, how frustrating is this to see people hosting illegal parties? We got accusations of people running booze cans, speakeasies, makeshift makeshift nightclubs and penthouses. How frustrating is that for you as a guy who's following all the rules? Well, I think, you know, not only individually as us, but I think our, all of our organizations, whether it's uh, uh, Hospitality Vancouver, ABLBC, the BC Restaurant Association, and all of us, we've all been basically on the same page from day one. Uh, we understand where we are. We really want to su- uh, support and do our, all of our part. And we've done, I think, our part by doing all of the safety uh, uh, protocols that the public health officer has, has uh, given us. And so it's really frustrating when you do have all these groups all doing their part. And then you have these individuals who decide, well, you know, we'll just go our own way um, on it. So. It's, it's, it is very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, how hard have you guys worked in, in this industry to keep people safe and, and follow all the guidelines? And, you know, we, I, I think everyone has done their part. I mean, you know, from partitions, from separating our tables, from doing all of the, the extra cleaning, um, from uh, adding uh, staff uh, to, to constantly do the, uh, uh, carry out the protocols. 
Um, all of those have been done, and we're going to continue to do those because we we do understand the safety of it. And, you know, I think one of our biggest issues that we have is that maybe we're hoping that as the situation goes is that um, the public health officer will take a look at uh, maybe re-extending re- some of the hours uh, to the industry uh, to maybe midnight or thereabouts because mm. that's part of what I think is one of the issues of the of these boost camps. It kind of reminds me of the old days of the late 80s and 90s when the underground raves and all that because of the rules and regulations. So it, it looks like every time we impose there's always somebody who's going to try to find a loophole, and it's sad that right. that's what's happening right now. Yeah, and, I mean, um, when they when they restrict the rules, I guess it maybe drives stuff underground. Like right now, the liquor service hours are cut off at 10 p.m. Right, so you're yeah. saying you're saying what? Let us if you if you uh, allow the bars to serve to midnight, maybe that lessens the temptation here to run an illegal booze can. I I would. Definitely agree with that. I'd say that, uh, honestly, that, and at, at the same time, as these individuals coming out, they are going to be in a safe environment. We have the protocols, um, you know, the, uh, that we follow, and, and that's not going to change because we, um, you know, might have an extra hour or two hours on it. But I think that that's what's happening in, in much of this is people want to go out. And not yeah. everybody goes out till eight o'clock at nine o'clock. So, right. um, we, we, you know, we have the training. Um, I mean, whether it's been the police or the liquor board or the health officers, they've come out, they've worked with us, they've shown us how to change some of our protocols and if they weren't right. strong enough, and we've done that, and we will continue to do that. So, But when these individuals get into these home environments or underground, there are no rules. There is no safety yeah. protocols in place, and I think that that's where a lot of the spreading is, is taking place. Right. Speaking of Vince Marino, he's the owner of the Pump Jack Pub and two other pubs in, in Vancouver. Yeah, I mean, people are going to party, right? So, I mean, if you kick, if you have to kick people out of your place at 10 o'clock, where are they going to go? Well, maybe they go to one of these uh, speakeasies or booze cans. Do you think there's more of these opening up? I mean, what, do you, what are you sort of hearing along, along the grapevine? We've seen two prominent busts here, but do you think there's more of them operating? I, I think there's more to operate, and, and you know, and, and it's a very difficult because I, I suppose in a very um, succinct, uh, everybody knows where we are as a group. The whole industry knows where all the clubs and, uh, and, and you know all the licensed establishments are. What's difficult for police and anybody else is they have to rely on the public, I guess, you know, uh, calling in when they see something that's possibly illegal. So. Um, I think these these things are definitely happening, and, and and there's just no way that the resources are there to find all of them unless somebody do you, or somebody does something really bad or something. Do you think the penalties are sufficient? I mean, we've seen some heftier fines handed out for the alleged operators of these places for people who are caught in an illegal booze operation, and the penalty is less. But I don't know, from your perspective, do you think the penalties are sufficient, or should they be... Should they be ramped up? Well, I, you know, I, I think I understand the the logistics of how the government came up with the, the penalties to start with. But I think what's really frustrating is that when you hear them and we hear them constantly, um, you know, these individuals have been warned or fined once, twice, three times, and it's still like $2,000 or that. So I, I, I think there's got to be some other way to uh, ramp these up so that, you know, yeah. if you're warned once and you don't can't figure it out and you're fine the next time, maybe okay. the next time you really should have, you know, much larger fines. I mean, 
from our industry, um, the reality is is that we don't get, you know, not only would we get fined if we got warned once and then we got fined, we probably end up being closed, yet yeah, right. we just continue to operate, and that's the real frustrating okay. part of it. Okay, Vince, I hope there's better days ahead for you. Thanks, for, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much. We hope so. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with those ICBC rebate checks. Everybody looking forward to getting that cold, hard cash from ICBC. Now, why are you getting these rebates? Well, it's because ICBC has been saving a fortune here during the pandemic. So drivers getting a rebate. Finally, finally, British Columbia is like the last jurisdiction in North America to give some of these savings back to drivers. Okay, how much are you going to get? on your rebate well the government says it will be an average of one hundred and ninety dollars now the key word there is average that's the average payout not everybody will get that some people will get less some people will get a lot more now who's going to get the biggest rebate here's where you got to keep your barf bags handy here the answer the worst drivers will get the biggest rebate the worst drivers if you've got a clean driving record you could get chump change the worst drivers with the most accidents they could get the biggest rebates here let's talk about it now with my guest liberal mla mike morris he's the opposition critic for the solicitor general on public safety i'm pleased to welcome back to the show mike thank you for coming on good morning mike my pleasure okay what do you think of this i mean the worst drivers getting the biggest rebates like why are they getting the biggest rebates well, the way the whole system is set up, you you know, the, the worst drivers uh, uh, pay increased premium costs uh, with, uh, you know, with the driver risk premiums or the driver point penalty program that ICBC has here. So it just adds to uh, the cost of their insurance. You know, a driver risk premium could go up by five, six hundred dollars just for a uh, distracted driving ticket. And it goes up from there with, uh, you know, um, when you're prohibited from driving for alcohol or any other reason there. So right. uh, there's a lot of dollars involved. I think this whole program is laid out, you know, with this $190 average calculation. I think it was a little misleading for most motors across the province. Yeah, I mean, do you think that a lot of people, when they heard that 190 bucks, they thought, oh, that's what I'm going to get. I'm going to get a $190 check in the mail. A lot of people could get significantly less than that. Well, exactly. You know, when some of these yeah. people are paying, uh, you know, two and three and four and five thousand dollar premiums on their insurance uh, policies, uh, they're driving, uh, you know, the million dollar cars and they're paying increased policies as a result of that as well. It certainly reduces the average for the average Joe like us who are driving a Ford Edge and, and uh, um, you know, a fifty thousand dollar car. Yeah. Okay. So let me give you a couple of examples here of how this is going to work. I give a tip of the hat here to Check TV in Victoria broke this story and their, their very fine reporter, Rob Shaw there. Let me, so let me read this to you, Mike, and get your thoughts. So for, here's an example, a high risk driver. Okay. So this is a driver who has had three recent at risk crashes, three accidents driving a 2015 Toyota Corolla. That driver could get a rebate of up to 547 bucks. 547 bucks. Now you compare that to a safe driver. Let's say someone with a 45 year clean driving record driving the same vehicle. That driver would get a $95 rebate. So 400 and 547 bucks for the bad driver. 95 bucks for the good driver. Does this make sense? Does this, 
Well, is that, is that what it is? I mean, you explain that they're calculating this on a percentage of your premium. So the bad drivers are paying more to begin with. So that's why they're getting a bigger rebate. But you don't think it's fair? Well, no, I don't. You know, when you look at the fact that the, the premiums were increased because of bad behavior, um, and we're, they're getting, you know, everybody gets this 19% rebate back at the end of the day. But, you know, is it fair when you, uh, if you actually calculate things out, is it fair at the end of the day? Um, and it's calculated out for this period from April until September 30th of, of last year. Um, it, it, you know, the, the whole thing, the, the, the whole calculation around this is obscure. And uh, I don't think it's fair for the average British Columbian. Do you think they should have done a different calculation? Maybe they could have used a different formula for calculating these rebates and give good drivers, safe drivers, drivers with a clean driving record, give them a larger rebate and maybe reduce the rebate for bad drivers. Is that what you would do? Yeah, I think so. And and, and looking forward into the future, maybe they, they could have uh, done something for uh, renewals of these insurance premiums uh, down the road here as well. But yeah, insurance has become so... Uh, uh, complex and so convoluted in this province uh, that it really needs an overhaul to uh, make it clear to everybody. People probably don't know or understand what they're getting for car insurance these days. Okay, speaking of Liberal critic Mike Morris, you also mentioned that people who are driving more expensive vehicles, of course, they're more expensive to insure if you've got a fancy vehicle those people will be getting a bigger rebate as well. So, for example, a, a lux- someone driving a luxury vehicle, let's say a, a, a new Range Rover, that driver could get a $400 a rebate uh, more than someone driving an, an old clunker or, or a less expensive vehicle. Do you have any thoughts there? I mean, should, should people driving expensive vehicles get a smaller rebate? Well, yeah, you know, they're, they're paying more in the first place. So, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I don't see anything wrong with that. What I do see wrong with this is the fact that government announced a $190 average check coming back to everybody. And that's based on these higher premiums that these expensive uh, vehicles were commanding at the end of the day. So I, I think it has misled the public into thinking that we were all going to get a $190 check. Well, um, no, I mean, they said it was going to be an average $190 check, right? So, I mean, yeah. you know, they, they didn't say everyone was going to get 190 bucks. They said some would get more and some would get less. But when you start drilling down into the numbers, that's when it becomes evident of who's Zoom and who here and, and how much you're going to get. Here's another one. Young drivers, like we've heard a lot about how young drivers have just got hammered by ICBC over the last few years. Those young drivers will also get a pretty hefty rebate i'm already hearing from some family saying like look i got two teenagers in my family driving they're paying a fortune you know they deserve their rebate your, your what are your thoughts on that yeah you know and so they should they've been playing paying those higher rebates ever since the ndp got into power and i think it's criminal the way uh, the the way things change for them so you know well, they're riskier drivers though right well, they're, they're riskier drivers. Uh, you know, if they've had accidents, of course, their premium, their driver risk premium will go up and their driver point penalty will go up as well. But if they haven't had any accidents, they're paying those high premiums anyways. Uh, you know, give them the rebates back. I think the parents could probably use a little bit of help here. So I think young drivers have been um, unfairly targeted with the new insurance uh, rates in the last three years. Okay, so the bottom line is the people who are really getting screwed the most here are the good drivers, like the drivers who've got a clean driving record for, who knows, 10, 20, 30 years, clean driving, no accidents, no tickets. A lot of them could get a chump change 
rebate. You're saying give them more, give the bad drivers less, right? You bet. You know, the, the bad drivers need to be uh, penalized uh, for their habits that have led to uh, the high premiums that they pay. Uh, they, shouldn't be getting, uh, they shouldn't be getting that back. Okay. All right. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Take care. All right. Welcome back to the show. One year into the pandemic, and it's clear that the COVID-19 virus has changed meaningfully. We've got these mutations, these variants on the loose. Take a look at what's going on in British Columbia. BC has had 40 cases of the COVID-19 variants. Contact tracers here have linked all of them, or most of them, uh, all but five, to international travel. Uh, The COVID variants uh, gaining ground in other provinces as well. This is one of the big concerns for public health officials is the emergence of these COVID variants. Got an expert standing by to talk about it, Dr. Brian Conway, but have a listen to this here first. This is a montage you're going to hear here of Canadian leaders talking about these variants and the concerns that they raise. Have a listen. Limit the spread of more infectious virus variants. Canada is continuing to monitor for these variants. COVID-19 is fighting back even harder. Its new variants have potential to make us sick, make us sick faster. Those with positive tests will be immediately required to quarantine in designated government facilities to make sure they're not carrying variants of potential concern. We start to see one of these variants take off, uh, then all bets are off and we may need to actually increase some of the restrictions that we have in place. Okay, you heard Dr. Bonnie Henry there, also Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Health Minister Adrian Dix and others, all raising concerns about these COVID variants. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Dr. Conway, thanks a lot for coming on. Mike, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it a lot. Let's talk about these variants. Can you explain, explain these variants, like what these variants are? Well, the virus mutates. It changes its genetic code. And some of the variants have different characteristics than the initial strain of the coronavirus. They may be transmissible more easily. They may cause more serious disease. And this is why they are of concern right now. Okay, where did these, where did these variants come from? I mean, is it just kind of a natural process of how, how viruses work? They, just, they mutate? This is common, normal? Right. Viruses don't have molecular spell check. So when they replicate, they make mistakes. Some of these mistakes lead to a dead virus. Some of these mistakes lead to a more powerful virus. It happens spontaneously in nature. And it so happens that this particular variant that is causing most of the concern was initially described in the United Kingdom. There's another variant uh, that uh, comes to us from uh, South Africa, one from Brazil, one from California. There may be a BC variant going forward, but it's the UK variant that is of most concern right now. Okay, why are public health officials so concerned ab- about these variants? I mean, they more they more infectious, they spread more easily? Yeah, they spread more easily. That's really yeah. the issue. So that each time you encounter someone who is infected and you don't quite follow all of the rules... If the virus spreads more easily, each of these behaviors has a higher likelihood of the virus being transmitted and causing a new infection. And we don't want these variants to spread because it makes every behavior more dangerous and may lead to us having to at least maintain, if not enhance, the public health controls that are already in place. Okay. Are the variants more lethal? Do they cause more deaths? 
So far, we don't think so, so much. People are talking about the South African variant as being a bit more lethal, but the main concern right now is that they're easier to catch. Right, and they've spread these vi- these variants are spreading, right? So, what kind of condition are we situation are we in here? Let's say in British Columbia right now. I mean, we've got like forty confirmed cases of var- variants in, in BC. I mean, what does that number say to you? Well, there's many more in Ontario, so we're not in that particular situation. So that's reassuring. However, when uh, Doctor Henry updated us on Friday, there were eighteen. She updated us yesterday. There are now forty. So the numbers have doubled. And what's most concerning is that there's a few, not all, not that many, but a few where we don't exactly know how they were caught. So if we don't know how they were caught, we don't know if they're spreading on an ongoing basis. So what's happening right now at the BCCDC is they're doing a more intensive search than they have in the past for the variants to give us a real idea of the spread of the variants to date in British Columbia and whether this should lead to a change in the public health recommendations going forward. Okay, speaking of Dr. Brian Conway from the Vancouver Infectious Disease Center, some of these variants are causing a lot of concern, particularly the one we hear a lot about is is the Brazil the Brazil variant. Like are some of these variants more more dangerous than others? Well, we don't know everything yet. What we're most focusing on is how easy they are to catch, and that has characterized yeah. all of the variants that have been described to date. We're looking very hard at whether they make people sicker. Thankfully, the vaccine approach in British Columbia to date has favored protecting those in long-term care facilities and those that are more susceptible to getting very sick from the virus. So if they do have an effect on making people sicker, we have to some extent protected the population that would be most affected by that if, in fact, it does happen. Okay, is there any evidence that these variants can affect uh, certain groups in, in public more more effectively than others? Like, I'm thinking about kids, for example. Like, we've seen some, some re- I saw some reports out of the United Kingdom where there was a, an increase in, in cases among children uh, that had been traced to the, the, to the English variant. Are there any concerns there? Well, if anything is more transmissible, it will affect certain populations where the public health uh, behaviors are a bit more difficult to maintain in a continuous basis. And I think that's where this issue with the children has come from, is although in general terms they don't tend to be infected very often, if the virus is more transmissible, there's a concern that children would transmit it to each other through their daily behaviors a bit more than they have in the past. And from there, they could transmit it to adults, to older adults, and to those that are at risk of being hospitalized. So that's an issue that needs to be monitored very carefully. Not an issue yet in British Columbia. But, you know, we keep learning things. This pandemic keeps throwing curveballs at us. We need to be vigilant, and we need to to sort of uh, be on the ball and, and react to what's happening around us. Right. What about the vaccines now? There's so much hope placed in the vaccines. It appears to be our, our ticket out of this thing, we hope, eventually. What do we know about these variants in terms of the vaccines and, and the effectiveness of the vaccines in stopping the variants? Certain variants, such as the South African one, seem to be less responsive to the vaccine, meaning that the vaccine won't protect so much against its transmission. One of the newer vaccines that's about to come around, the AstraZeneca vaccine is much, much less effective against the South African variant. In fact, they're not even giving 
the AstraZeneca vaccine in South Africa anymore. So if that variant ever spreads here in British Columbia, that could be a significant concern. We know the AstraZeneca wouldn't work. It may be that the others will work less well. So that's another good reason to try and keep that variant out of BC. Okay, what can we do to to stop this now? Does it just sort of stick to the plan, or do you think like tougher measures are required? I think tougher measures would be counterproductive because wow. people would potentially try to find ways around them. I think we've hit a bit of a sweet spot right now in that most people are following most of the rules most of the time, which I think is what, all we can expect from ourselves uh, at this uh, at this point in time. But it's important to try and follow the rules as much as possible. The things, the behaviors that are transmitting virus is younger people in their 20s and 30s spending a lot of time in larger groups indoors. That would be the behavior to completely avoid. And other than that, the virus doesn't have wings. Stay two meters away from the next closest person and it'll be extremely hard to get infected all right welcome back here we go now with the great national anthem debate should the anthem be played at sporting events the dallas mavericks of the nba they really kick this debate into high gear now their outspoken owner mark cuban confirming yesterday the team is dropping the national anthem before their home games sparking a fierce debate on social media so why do we even play the national anthem before sporting events in the first place? Our show contributor, John Jang, has the history behind this tradition. John. To sing or not to sing? That is the question today, especially since the Dallas Mavericks of the NBA have become the first professional sports team in North America to officially remove that portion of their pregame procedures. But before we dive into whether or not we should sing, let's go back in time now to learn why we do sing at sporting events. <laughs> Most experts agree the first notable example of the Star-Spangled Banner being played at a sporting event would take us back to the 1918 World Series, because two years prior to that, then-U.S. President Woodrow Wilson ordered the Star-Spangled Banner to be played at all military ceremonies and other appropriate occasions. Now, it's important to note that the Star-Spangled Banner was not the national anthem of the United States during this time, and it wouldn't be for almost 20 more years when the Senate officially passed a bill into law in 1931 adopting that song as the country's national anthem. But... Between 1916, when President Wilson made the Star-Spangled Banner a more commonly heard song throughout the United States, and the 1918 World Series, it's critical that we understand the greater context of what else was happening in the world at that time. With World War I raging on in Europe, the decision to play the Star-Spangled Banner during the seventh inning stretch of Game 1 of the 1918 World Series was immensely popular as a show of support for the troops overseas. The crowd was already on their feet, and when the band began playing the song, the entire stadium began to sing along and applaud it at the very end. Now, given the positive reaction, the song was played during the next two games of the World Series, and the tradition slowly grew to include other special occasions like opening day and other national holidays. 
But that World Series experience in 1918 actually helped influence Canadian participation as well. Because on December 26th that year, after World War I had come to an end, and months after the popular experience that was displayed at the World Series, the NHL, just a baby entering its second season during that time, saw the national anthem being played before a game between the visiting Toronto Maple Leafs and the home Ottawa Senators. Except it's not the anthem that you're probably thinking about. There was one extra reason why the anthem was played that night, and that's because the Duke of Devonshire was actually in attendance, which made the event even more spectacular. But it wasn't until the 1930s that the NHL began playing the national anthem regularly before their games. Now, it's commonly believed that the national anthem at sporting events were popularized by the Olympic Games first, but the winner's podium actually didn't exist until 1932 when the Summer Games were held in Los Angeles, and we know it was already a common occurrence at baseball games long before then. Now that we have some historical context, I think it's absolutely fair. We ask why the anthem is necessary at all sporting events. Most of us can understand the need to represent one's country during an international affair, such as world championships, a world cup, or indeed the Olympic Games. But if the Star-Spangled Banner was only introduced to American sports crowds with the backdrop of the First World War happening at that time, well, I think it's safe to say here in 2021, almost 76 years removed from the previous World War, that the pressing need to spread patriotism just isn't as dire. And bringing this all back to the Dallas Mavericks and Mark Cuban, well, Sports Illustrated made a very good point about that. You know how I know the Dallas Mavericks deciding not to play the national anthem before games isn't actually a big deal? Because no one noticed until just now. The team hasn't played it before any games thus far this season, and Mark Cuban confirmed they do not plan to resume doing so, which I think is a good decision. At this point, when I hope we can be entering less divisive times, I don't believe anything productive comes from arguing about what others choose to do during the anthem. If you want to stand with pride in your hand on your heart, cool. If you want to kneel in protest, cool. If you want to do neither, cool. Let's be real. A bunch of people just got done placing bets on the over-under on the song's duration at the Super Bowl. Now, I get the lack of fans may have made this a little easier to pull off under the radar, but not playing the national anthem before events isn't exactly unprecedented. I don't recall it being played before going to dinner, or the movies, or a concert, or when reporting to work. Why should sports be any different? As for the man himself, Mark Cuban, well, he's no stranger to anthem politics, if you will. Here he is in 2017, when the notion of kneeling during the anthem was being hotly contested. On the anthem, I always put my hand over my heart and say a little prayer during the anthem, and I encourage my players to do the same thing, whatever's personal to them, to take that time to, to use that. But um, there are still citizens. Some of them are United States citizens, right? And they have the right to do what they see fit. You know, um, no one stopped them if they chose to donate to a, part a particular campaign. I don't know who they donate to and I don't care, right? That's participating in the political process and no one made an effort to stop them one way or the other there. You know, no one stopped them one way or the other um, from campaigning or endorsing. And so there's no reason 
to say, okay, you, you can't take your position and, and protest the way you see appropriate. So, to sing or not to sing. Personally, this contributor feels the Mavericks are living up to their name, but could also be the first of many more to follow.